to finish by 7 p.m. Otherwise, we're going to have to uh, wrap it up and finish next week. Uh, let's open with prayer, eh? Dear Lord, we thank you that uh, we can meet on, on a Tuesday. This is our first Tuesday meeting for Life of Messiah, and we pray that you bless this study. We pray that you bless the, uh, the uh, observation that we'll make into the Life of Messiah, that we can uh, receive this in the spirit in which it was written, um, as well in the spirit in which we are going about it. I pray for uh, attentive hearts and attentive minds. I pray all these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen. All right, so this is the Jewish life of Messiah. We are going back to, uh, to the life of Jesus and stripping him away from uh, millennia of Greek and Roman uh, obstruction of who he was and the context in which he grew up, lived, and had his earthly ministry. So this evening we are going to do a little bit of an introduction on how we're going to go about our study. This is a six-month study, 27 weeks. Um, so I want you all to know what to be prepared for. Uh, so first, why are we doing this study? The importance of understanding who Jesus is can't be overstated. The entire Old Testament leads up to the Gospels. Everything in the New Testament after the Gospels is based off of those foundations. So this is a pivotal study in the doctrine of God's plan for the world, God's plan for history, God's plan for the future. If we misunderstand Jesus in his context and what he came to do and what he came to do for us, then we misunderstand the rest of scripture as well. So we want to be particularly diligent when it comes to the Gospels. We're going to follow a particular methodology here we are going to use a literal interpretation, and we are not going to use Greek philosophy to try to understand who Jesus was or what he was teaching. We're going to use Jewish tradition, particularly Jewish tradition based off of the Old Testament and the intertestamental period that led to Jesus Christ. So there's going to be more rabbinic literature cited here to understand what was going on in Jesus' day and age. Uh, there is going to be a lot less of uh, Philo and other allegorical Greek thought going on. The question of why there are four Gospels has sometimes baffled people. It's actually quite a simple answer. Each of these four Gospels had a different purpose. Each of these four writers had a different audience that they were writing to and they were all enmeshed in different immediate circumstances and scenarios that warranted writing out the life of Messiah, particularly an argument surrounding who Messiah was. Not all of these Gospels are written in consecutive order. That might bother us at first, but not all of them were supposed to be a historical account in chronological order. They're all historically accurate, but only one gospel makes a claim to write specifically in a consecutive order, and that is Luke. In Luke 1.3, he says, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. 
most excellent Theophilus. Now the words of Jesus Christ are, or the words of uh, scripture are inerrant. And so here when Luke says he has written in consecutive order, we have to follow his order. And we're fine doing that. It actually makes things quite clear. But sometimes the gospels don't present uh, events in the same order. When they're in a different order, we use Luke's book to understand what order they actually happened in. And from this issue in the Gospels that isn't really an issue, arise harmonies. Harmonies are a compilation of all four Gospels. This tradition goes all the way back to the second century, uh, 200 years, 150 years after Jesus Christ, within 100 years of these Gospels being written, they were being compiled into single documents or single scrolls. Oops, I got to stick with my notes here. So these harmonies sometimes, I think, misunderstood the purpose of the Gospels. They looked at them as information dumps of facts about Jesus and they tried to just squeeze them all into one document. Now this isn't necessarily bad as long as it's done in the right manner. And so we are going to uh, be particular about our approach to compiling all of this information about Jesus Christ. Because these Gospels aren't information dumps. They have a purpose, they have a context, they each have an argument that they're developing. So we want to be sensitive to those arguments before we take the texts and parallel them with the others. Because a text without context is a pretext. That means that without viewing it in the book in which it was written, it doesn't have any meaning. It's just words on a page. But they are inspired in their original form in these four Gospels. Not just the words written, not just the events that happened, but the order in which they were written. So in Matthew, writes that event A happened and then event B happened, but Mark writes that event B happened and then event A happened. This is inspired. Neither of them claim chronological order. Both of these records are perfectly accurate. And so in our approach, we're going to follow Luke's order, but we are going to use Matthew's theme that Matthew developed which was Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews. A lot of uh, gospel harmonies try to use Matthew instead of Luke because of the importance of the book of Matthew and because of the seeming chronological order because it has such a, uh, such a purposeful intention behind it in developing Jesus Christ as the King. So we don't want to lose that. In fact, we want to emphasize that here in our study. So our study is going to take place in 11 different divisions, actually 12 divisions. We're going to first see the coming of the king. We'll start that next week, and I think that's about three weeks. That'll include his genealogies, the early life of Jesus Christ, his growing up, and then the authentication of the king, where... Jesus Christ is authenticated by God and by the Holy Spirit and by the signs which he performs. This causes controversy among the Jewish leaders 
who are expecting a Messiah, but they're expecting a Messiah who follows Pharisaic tradition. They're not expecting a Messiah who rebels against what they are teaching. So they reject Jesus Christ. They reject him as the Messiah of Israel, and Israel follows their human leaders rather than the king of God's choosing. And this leads to a standoff between Jesus Christ and the Pharisees. This happens in Matthew chapter 12. From that point forward, Jesus' ministry becomes a private one, one to his disciples. And what might be shocking is this probably happens relatively early in his three-year ministry. If I were to bet on when it happened, I would say somewhere in his first year. He spends the next two years training his disciples, training them about the program of the church that will come after he departs from this earth. And so he prepares those disciples, and this is specifically the 12 disciples. John is one who wrote a gospel, and he includes the most information of any of these gospels about what Jesus Christ taught about the church. The others are focused primarily on the events of the first century in the apostolic era, and primarily on the Jewish context, the Jewish history of the expectation of a Messiah and what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. Second half of our study then is the official presentation of the king. This is the beginning of the last week of his life. So half of our study is going to be in the very last week of the life of Jesus Christ, where he rides into Jerusalem as the Messiah officially offered, but with a secondary purpose as well, as the lamb offered on the altar to pay for the sins of the world. Then our eighth part will be the preparation for the death of the king, the trial of the king and the death of the king, the resurrection and ascension of the king, and then the last week, we're going to look at what this means for the rest of the New Testament. We're going to see how removing Jesus Christ from the imposition of Roman and Greek culture, which Jewish culture at that time resisted. They didn't embrace it. Jesus Christ wasn't speaking like a Greek philosopher when he taught. When we remove that from the equation, what happens to the book of Acts and what happens to the book of Hebrews? Those are the two that we are going to focus on. It changes the way we interpret them when we put them back in their Jewish context. All right, very briefly, let's look at some of the resources that we have for this study. The first one that I want you to uh, pay attention to will be the pastor's notes. These are probably the only thing that you need for this study. Beside your Bibles, that's the most important thing, but I assume you all already have those. These are going to be my notes uh, that I type up. We'll send them to you before each class. You can read them before, during, although that might be kind of hard, or after each class. And they will have basically the information presented in the class. <clears throat> Another thing is the student manual. This will have homework. Most of you probably haven't done homework in quite a long time. Uh, it's not scary. 
should be able to be done within about an hour to an hour and a half each week. And the purpose of the homework is not to test you, but to get you into the text itself, to get you wrestling with some of the ideas that we're going to talk about in the next week's session. So that you're already kind of prepared, perhaps with questions that will be answered in the class, or with questions that you've had that you're able to answer for yourself by going directly to the Word of God and searching them out for yourselves. As well, there is Ariel's Harmony of the Gospels. We'll talk about this a bit more when we look at what the harmonies are. Uh, this is the primary text that I am using. Um, it is the ASV version, uh, but when I put it into these slides, it'll be in the NASB, which is what I think most of you had, and it's in what's in our pews as well. Uh, and the reason I'm using Ariel's Harmony of the Gospels is because it's a harmony that uses a Luke priority. That means it organizes all of the passages of the Gospel around Luke's timeline. Uh, there are other harmonies as well, including uh, A.T. Robertson's, which we have here. He uses Mark because he thinks Mark was the first Gospel written. I'm going to refute that as well, but that's what A.T. Robertson believed. And uh, last, oh, I guess there are more things here. Uh, all right, there is uh, a couple books that we've put into the library. One is Yeshua, the Life of Messiah. That's basically a uh, summary of the information that you'll receive in this class. Uh, it's not quite as, as complete, I believe, as what we'll get through in this six months, but it's, uh, it's a good start. This is actually the uh, primary text that I'm using. So this is all of the uh, basically rabbinic literature as well that talks about the life of Christ, the first century Israel, and uh, how we ought to interpret the life of Jesus Christ in his context and not in a later Greek or Roman context. So that, book, that set of books we don't have available for you. But uh, if you're really interested, you can get it on arielministries.com or .org. Um, as well, I'll be using the Words and Works of Jesus Christ by uh, J. Dwight Pentecost and the Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim. All right, because we are uh, trying to finish before Arnold Fruchtenbaum himself comes to speak at our church, uh, we have only 27 sessions instead of 28. Um, so if you want more information about the background to the life of Jesus Christ, what happened during the 400 silent years between Malachi and Matthew, uh, then you can pick up the note packet labeled Notes 00. Uh, they are online on our website, and we have a few copies in the back as well. That'll talk about the Roman and Greek history in Israel and how Israel was resisting Hellenization. Uh, they were not embracing it. And then it'll give you some information about first century Judaism. Also, it will give you an introduction to some of the topics that uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum will speak on when he comes to the church, such as the three miracles which confirmed Jesus Christ as the Messiah, three miracles which no other uh, prophet or uh, yeah, which no other prophet did before Jesus Christ and none after. As well, um, how the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. When we get to Matthew 2 in our study, we'll, uh, we'll look at that as well, though.
All right, harmonization. Uh, it is something that has been done for millennia. This is my copy of the first harmony uh, ever made. This isn't the original copy, but it is a English translation of the original copy. Uh, from the second century AD, it's called the diatessaron from the Greek words dia and tessaron, from four, meaning it's from the four gospels. But I think his approach was uh, a little confused, although I don't have him to ask whether or not he understood the purpose of the gospels. Uh, what he did was not parallel the four gospel texts, but he edited all four of them together. So whichever one had the most information, he kept that verse and he threw away the rest. Uh, so that's uh, not what we're going to do here. We're going to look at all four of the Gospels paralleled around Luke's Gospel. And what that looks like is a little like this. I don't know how many of you have seen a Gospel Harmony before. Here's one actually from A.T. Robertson's book. Uh, so it follows a Mark priority. You see Mark in the middle there. Um, actually, maybe this isn't from A.T. Robertson's because this has Matthew first. Anyways, you can see how there are some gaps in the Matthew account because Matthew wasn't as detailed here. But Mark was plenty detailed and Luke was plenty detailed. The idea is to look at all four of them in a chronological order without losing the individual nature of each gospel. There are some limitations to harmonies. The first one being that a harmony is not inspired. Uh, the organization, even following the Lucan uh, priority, loses inspiration. No longer can we say that the text is inspired by God. Each word is inspired by God in the order that it is written. But when we rearrange Matthew, when we rearrange Mark, and when we rearrange John, we're not looking at inspired order. The inspired order of Matthew, John, and Mark has to be considered even when we are looking at it paralleled around the Gospel of Luke. All right, and this misunderstanding, again, has come from the idea that the Gospels record all information that was possibly available to each writer, that they compiled it to the best of their ability in chronological order. This is simply not true. In fact, John tells us that uh, there were many other signs that Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, and those signs were not written in this book. So John says that there are other details, other facts that he knows that he chose not to record. He gets a little, uh, I think, sarcastic at the end of his book and says there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. The task of trying to information dump on Jesus is simply impossible. These disciples, two of whom wrote Gospels, spent three years with Jesus Christ. And though I haven't met him in physical person, um, he seems to be a bit wordy. I think there would be plenty to fill uh, even the entire earth, just as John says. So here's a little graphic about how the Gospels are created. In the light green oval in the background, this represents everything that Jesus ever said and did on this earth. 
These colored splotches in it represent individual acts, words, or signs. And you can see how Matthew might choose this purple event and this green event to record in his. For what reason? Because it fits his theme. It fits his argument. It helps develop what he's trying to say. Mark might choose to use the purple event, just as Matthew did, but then he chooses the blue one instead of the green event. This is how the Gospels were created. Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John all had plenty of information available to them, so much so that they had to be editors, not writers. They had to select which events to record. And so that's why we use Luke as the priority text here, because only he says that he purposefully wrote it in order. Everyone else is developing a different argument. Luke's argument is chronology. So we're following Luke. All right, the rest of our time we are going to look at the purpose, theme, and character of each of these four Gospels so that we understand them in their context and in the intent for which they were written. Matthew, I believe, was the first gospel written. Not Mark, but Matthew. And in fact, I would probably date this earlier than most other people you've ever heard date the gospel of Matthew. Uh, I believe Matthew was probably written within a decade of Jesus Christ's death. Uh, I believe it was written after 36 AD, the stoning of Stephen, but before Gentiles were brought into the fold of the church in about 47 AD. So 10 to 15 years after Jesus Christ's death, in fact, 5 to 15 years, was probably when the Gospel of Matthew was written. And the reason for that is uh, multiple. First, the purpose that Matthew wrote the book was because of an event that ensued after the stoning of Stephen which is called the Diaspora. Before the Diaspora, there was no need for a gospel. All of the apostles were local in Jerusalem, and all of the believers were local in Jerusalem. If they had a question about something that Jesus the Messiah said or did, they just go to the local apostle and ask him. But after the Diaspora, they are no longer together in one location. They need an authentic record that they can go to. And now Matthew can't write volumes and volumes and volumes like Martin Luther did. He's got to be selective. So he develops a single argument. And it's going to be probably the most important question that he can answer for any of those Jews who are part of the church. Or any of those Jews who are not part of the church, but whom he is trying to evangelize. So this is a Jewish question, and that question is, how can Jesus be the Messiah if the Messianic kingdom is not present? This would be reigning supreme on the mind of all Jews. Their expectation was a king who would restore glory to Israel. If Jesus was the Messiah, why did he not do so? And Matthew is going to answer that question as well. That's the argument of his book. The Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. He wasn't going to come and force them to receive him. He was going to come and offer them the kingdom. They rejected him as the Messiah, and so the kingdom was postponed. The kingdom was not transferred to the church. It was not given to a different people. 
The kingdom is a Jewish promise and it will be fulfilled to the Jews. We are branches grafted in and awaiting the Jewish kingdom. The kingdom was postponed until a later generation would receive Jesus Christ as their Messiah, and they will do so. A secondary purpose of Matthew's gospel and why this must have been written before 70 AD is that Jesus warns of the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which had not yet happened at the time that Matthew wrote. So one of the purposes of Matthew was to warn the Jews still living in Jerusalem that you better get out. That is also one of the themes of Hebrews. And Matthew and the author of Hebrews were both very successful because at the time of the sack of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD, there was not recorded, at least, and I believe not one, believing Jewish uh, person in Jerusalem. In 67 AD, actually between 67 and 68 AD, there was a mass exodus of Messianic believers from Jerusalem. And so they were all spared, those who believed personally in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, while unbelieving Jews remaining in Jerusalem were destroyed together with the city and the temple. So the theme of Matthew is to develop this statement. Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, is the promised king of the Jews. So this is his theme, and whenever we see Matthew in our study, we want to remember this is the theme he is developing. This is the argument he wants to train us in. We see this in Matthew's structure as well. Matthew is designed around five different discourses or sermons given by Jesus Christ. Each one of these revolves around the kingdom promised to the Jews. In Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus teaches on kingdom righteousness, what the law meant, how it was supposed to be applied, and how righteousness will look in the kingdom. This is sometimes called the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is not a bad title for this. However, it only applies to the Matthew passage as the uh, recorded, uh, a similar sermon recorded in Mark was not a sermon on a mount, but a sermon on a flat plain. Um, so they are probably two different sermons about similar topics. But we're not calling this the Sermon on the Mount in this study because that ignores Matthew's theme. We're looking at a thematic study of Jesus Christ's life through the four Gospels, not a geographic uh, study of Jesus Christ's life. The next one is the Kingdom Missions, where he tells the disciples to go out and bring the, or the uh, offer of the kingdom to the Jews only, and not the Gentiles. This text has, been, uh, has baffled many as well, especially Reformed, or uh, not Reformed, or reformed, but replacement theologians who basically look at everything as an offer of saving gospel, an offer of salvation, eternal salvation. Now, eternal salvation is required to receive the kingdom, but the offer here is to Israel as a whole for the Jewish kingdom promised to them in the Old Testament 
And that's why this offer was not given to the Gentiles. The Gentiles could not receive the Jewish kingdom. The Jews had to receive the Jewish kingdom. That is explained for us in Matthew 10. Kingdom postponement. Why the kingdom was postponed. Sometimes this is called the kingdom parables. These are also used out of context quite often to teach people uh, that they have to work for their salvation. And that is, or that they can lose their salvation. That is not the purpose at all of what Jesus Christ is teaching in these parables. He is teaching about why the church age has to intercede between the coming of the kingdom. In Matthew 18, he teaches on the greatness of the kingdom, who will be first in the kingdom. And then he teaches in Matthew 24 through 25 of the coming of the kingdom. When will the end of this age come? This is sometimes called the Olivet Discourse, but for the same reason, I do not call the Sermon on the Mount the Sermon of the Mount, but Kingdom Righteousness. I am calling this Kingdom Coming rather than the Olivet Discourse. Which, by the way, is the greatest sermon on prophecy that Jesus Christ ever preached uh, that is recorded for us. So uh, there is no precedent for saying prophecy should not be preached. Jesus Christ did so, and he spent more time on this than almost anything else. All right, some characteristics of Matthew. Matthew probably spoke Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. He was a very intelligent man, which is probably why he is the first of the 12 disciples to record a gospel. Peter and John are very intelligent men as well, but they are not trained in uh, scholastics as Matthew would have been for his profession as a tax collector. He needed to interact with Greeks. He needed to interact with Romans. He needed to interact with all the Jews, those speaking Hebrew and those speaking Aramaic. He was an intelligent man, and he demonstrates that in the writing of his gospel. <clears throat> Matthew also deals with issues that are only important to a Jewish audience. Now we have secondary importance. We can learn a lot about Jesus Christ through these issues that uh, that Matthew deals with, uh, but he makes no effort to explain these customs, makes no effort to explain these issues to his audience, which means he probably was not writing to a Gentile audience. He probably had no need to because there were no Gentiles in the church yet. There were no Gentiles in the church until Paul's missionary uh, missions in 47 AD. So this was probably written before 47 AD, when there were no Gentiles yet in the church who needed a gospel. Some of those issues which Matthew deals with is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, something we're going to spend more time on next week. But it only goes back to Abraham, whereas Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. Matthew's genealogy also skips certain generations. This has a Jewish purpose, and this doesn't bother the Jewish mind, but it does bother the Greek and Roman mind, and the Western culture, which is based off of Greek philosophy, has a hard time with the skipped generations in Matthew's genealogy. The Jews did not, and we need to look at this through a Jewish context because it was given to a Jewish audience. As well, Matthew deals with issues like tax collecting by the Romans in Israel. The Jews were collected tax, uh, 
the Romans collected temple tax from the Jews. Am I saying that right? The Jews had to pay a temple tax. <laughs> Sorry, it's been a long day. Jews had to pay a temple tax. Gentiles did not. Gentiles did not have to deal with this issue. And Matthew talks about this in his gospel, while the others do not. Matthew talks about the Jewish customs, culture, cult practices, the temple, and the synagogues, whereas the others diminish these or they explain them when they do have to use them because they are writing to Gentile audiences. Matthew seems to have no expectation that Gentiles would be reading his gospel because at this time the church is made only of Jews who have received their Messiah. Lastly, he does not deal with any non-Jewish issues. Matthew does not bother with uh, Jesus Christ's interactions with Gentiles. Now there is room for those in Matthew's Gospel because there is room for those in Jesus Christ. And that is whom Matthew is expounding to us. But he is not going to spend time uh, telling us about the woman at the well who was a Samaritan and not a Jew. He's not going to spend time talking about Gentiles unless it pertains to Jewish issues. Mark was probably written in the mid to late 60s, sometime before the sack of Jerusalem, but I actually place Mark as the third gospel written. It's possible that it was written before Luke, but I have not found enough evidence to place it before Luke. The author is John Mark, who is a Hebrew Christian and a disciple of Peter. In fact, he was probably Peter's scribe. This book makes no effort to write in a chronological fashion. We can assume that some of these things are chronological as it parallels well with Luke, but not on all topics, because Mark also had a purpose that he is developing. And when his purpose was better served by presenting material out of chronological order, he did so. So Mark's purpose was to present the Jewish Messiah to the Romans. Ultimately, this would serve to present the Jewish Messiah to all Gentiles. But he wrote to a Roman culture. Now, he did not write a Roman gospel. He wrote a Jewish gospel, but he wrote it to the Roman people to show them that this Jew provides salvation for them as well. Jesus is presented as the faithful servant of the one true God, the faithful servant of Jehovah. This is a theme which is throughout the entire book of Isaiah. Mark is not a Gentile. Mark is not writing only to a Gentile audience, but he is writing with a Gentile audience in mind for the first time. So this is probably written after 47 AD, when there are Gentiles in the church to whom he can write. This idea of Jesus Christ as the faithful servant of Jehovah speaks to the mind of a Roman, because a Roman is concerned not with the background of a man, not with the royal lineage of a man, but in how effectively he fulfills the tasks 
that he has been given to do. And that is what Mark presents for us. He prevent, pre, presents Jesus Christ as a fitting servant of the one true God, one who successfully and trustworthily fulfills all that has been given to him to fulfill. And Mark also presents Jesus Christ as the suffering servant, another, uh, another concept brought out in Isaiah's prophecy. This was contrary to what the Pharisees believed their Messiah would be. In fact, some have gone so far in Pharisaic tradition to propose two Messiahs to get around the Isaiah 53 issue of a suffering Messiah. So this is as much an apologetic to the Romans to accept a Jew as one who can save them as it is to the Jews to accept a suffering Messiah. The theme of Mark is Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, the servant of the one true God. Jesus Christ refuses to save himself in order to complete the mission of his master. This would speak mightily to the Roman mindset. Mark records for us the uh, snafu with the Roman guards who are supposed to guard the tomb of Jesus Christ, and they fall asleep on duty. I think Mark is juxtaposing these Romans with one who fulfills the ideal Roman model better than the Romans do, of one who is faithful even unto death to complete his mission, his mission for the one true God. And his mission is to bring salvation to the whole world, including the Romans. Now this is written to a Roman audience, but many in that Roman audience during this diaspora may be Jews. So he is writing to a Jewish and a Gentile audience in a Roman world. And he is writing in the late 50s or mid to late 60s when these Jews and Gentiles who have become Christians are being persecuted by Emperor Nero. They are being put to death. And here they are presented with the ideal man who suffers unto death. So the characteristics then of Mark's gospel go hand in hand with Mark's purpose. Jewish customs are explained in this book because no longer is the church just made out of Jews, but it's made out of Gentiles as well. They have been brought into the fold just as Jesus said they would, just as God said they would. This gospel is fast-paced. Forty-two times, this author uses the Greek word uthus, which means right away, straightforward, immediately, meaning that Jesus Christ did not delay at all to do exactly what was expected of him to do next. Now, Mark does not record as many events as the other four Gospels. But each event that he does record, he records in far more detail than the others. 
because he wants to be very detailed to show that Jesus Christ did not skip anything. He did not cut any corners. He did everything perfectly and exactly to expectation. And lastly, there is no genealogy in this gospel. In fact, this is the only gospel that does not have a genealogy. It's not just Matthew and Luke that have genealogies. John does have one as well, and that's what our, the first half of our next week's session is going to be on, his divine genealogy in John. But Mark does not have a genealogy, and that is because, to the Roman mindset especially, but also to the Jew, it does not matter where a servant came from. His lineage does not make him special, but his service makes him trustworthy, makes him faithful. His service makes him who he is. So Jesus Christ's, or the absence of Jesus Christ's genealogy in Mark is demonstrative of Mark's purpose, which is to show Jesus Christ as a servant. The Gospel of Luke was written by Luke, who also wrote Acts. Both of these are uh, chronological. They are written to a Greek audience. Luke probably lived in Antioch, as did Theophilus, to whom he wrote, and he was a disciple of Paul. So here we have Gospels now written by Matthew, a disciple of Jesus Christ. Mark, the scribe of a disciple, Peter. Luke, the disciple of Paul. And John, a disciple of Jesus Christ. Luke then is the most distant to Jesus Christ. Because Paul was not an immediate witness, so Luke is not a secondary witness, but a tertiary witness. Luke is going to conduct interviews. Luke is going to use other resources. He is going to use primary sources to write his gospel. So he probably wrote his gospel while Paul was in prison. In 57, or between 57 and 59 AD, Paul was imprisoned in the city of Caesarea, and Luke probably went to Jerusalem. He would have spent that time interviewing first-hand sources, eyewitnesses, including Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ, which is why Luke is able to tell us what Mary was thinking during her pregnancy, able to tell us more intimate details about the upbringing of Jesus Christ. Luke cares a lot about women in his gospel. He mentions them more often than the other uh, gospel writers. He uses them as primary witnesses. This is something rather unheard of in first century, to use the testimony of women. But Luke does so. These women's testimony are trustworthy, and Luke recognizes that because God created those women, and God recognizes that. The purpose of Luke, then, is to show Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as the ideal human being. The genealogy of Luke goes all the way back to Adam, not just to Abraham, to show his Jewish history, but to all the way back to Adam to show his kinsmanship with humanity, to show that he is 
a satisfactory redeemer, one who is from the headship of Adam, part of the human race, able to redeem the human race. But he also shows Jesus Christ as the ideal human from a Greek mindset. The Greeks valued philosophy and athleticism. Jesus Christ demonstrated that he is able to discipline his body. His fasting in the wilderness is covered in Luke's account in greater length than in the other two places that it, one, two, in the other two gospel accounts. Jesus also shows that he's able to discipline his mind. Jesus, even as a young child, is able to contend with the Pharisees and the rabbis. Jesus Christ was an impressive specimen to the Greeks who valued this ability to discipline one's entire self. The theme of Luke, then, is to present Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, as the Son of Man. Now, this is kind of a, uh, a double meaning here, because it is the ideal man, the Son of Man, the Son of Adam, but the Son of Man as well, as is used in the context of the Old Testament prophets. The Son of God, the Son of Man, who stands in the place of Adam, who is able to have dominion over this world. He is able to withstand the temptations of the body, the temptations of the mind, in a way that Adam was not able to do. And so Jesus Christ here is presented as the Son of Man, a worthy deliverer, the anointed one of God, a kinsman redeemer from the line of Adam, who is able to take dominion over this world. Some characteristics of this gospel, it is in chronological order, as is stated in Luke 1.3. It was compiled from interviews, primarily. He also probably had the Gospel of Matthew to consult with, as it was a very early record of the life of Christ, and it was an authoritative record of the life of Christ. He could have interviewed Peter or John, who also wrote their Gospels. He knew Paul. He was on Paul's missionary journeys. He probably met many of these apostles just as Paul did. Paul spent quite a bit of time with Peter in certain um, intersections upon their multiple journeys. Luke had ample opportunity to interview a wide variety of people. So it's no wonder that Luke wrote the longest gospel of any as well. Because just like the Greeks, who write extensive volumes of history in chronological order, so did Luke. In fact, if you look at multiple cultures around the earth, how many of those cultures' histories were written by the Greeks? Syrian culture, Mesopotamian culture, Egyptian culture, Ethiopian culture. Most of what we know about them was recorded by the Greeks. They had a high emphasis on historical accuracy. And so Luke had a high focus on historical accuracy so that he could appeal to the Greeks and demonstrate that his Messiah 
is also their Savior. The last gospel here was also the last written. That is the Gospel of John, which was probably written in about 85 AD from the city of Ephesus. John did not begin writing until every other book of the Bible had already been written. John was the last to begin, and obviously then the last to finish, and he wrote five books. Besides Peter, he wrote more books than anyone else in the New Testament. And thank goodness he did. In fact, John's writings are some of my favorites. I've spent more time in them in the last two years than in other books. And they are very carefully written. I think he took all 50 years developing what he wrote here in his gospel. All of the other gospels were present and available. And John didn't duplicate much information. In fact, the first three gospels are called the synoptic gospels because they parallel in many ways. But John's gospel stands out among all of them. It is not a duplicate record. In fact, John's purpose was to record events that the others left out. Events w which he decided by means of the Holy Spirit were important. Now, John was also a pastor. He wasn't just a missionary. He was localized to Ephesus and he spent time there. He spent time ministering to his flock. He knew what they needed. He knew what the church needed to grow. And that's what he was giving them. He was giving them a gospel which would ensure them, let me get to my next slide here, ensure them that their faith that they had in Jesus Christ was sufficient, that there is nothing else they needed besides belief to receive Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as their Savior by believing that he was. Just as the Jews rejected him by not believing that he was their Messiah, so any person rejects Jesus Christ as their Savior by not believing that he is who he said he is and that he did what he said he did. And so to believe in him was the purpose of John's gospel. And he states that very clearly. John 20, 31 says, These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so the theme of John's gospel is Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, the Son of the one true God and the Savior of the world. And yes, Jesus Christ must be the Son of the one true God. John spends, I, I think, his entire epistle dealing with this issue. Because the first time it comes up is in 1 John 2, 22. And the last time it comes up here is in 1 John 5, 5. He says, the one who does not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is the Antichrist. In 1 John 5, 5, it says, the one who overcomes the world, or who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. How do you overcome the world? He says, this is our faith that overcomes the world, but how do you overcome the world but believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And so John's gospel focuses on that issue. Jesus Christ and his divine origin so we get a heavenly genealogy of Jesus Christ in the first 18 verses of John. 
that's going to be the bulk of what we study next time, so I'm not going to spend much time on it here. But let's look at the characteristics here of John's book. We like John's book when we read his gospel. It resonates with a lot of us, and that's because John doesn't really mince his words very much. He makes stark contrasts, and he uses word pictures to do that. He contrasts light and dark, life and death, good and evil, and he makes no gray areas in between. In fact, light and dark is a main theme that he uses throughout his book to distinguish what is good and what is bad. An example of this is in the Passover celebration. Passover, which was always celebrated at night, and yet John includes in his gospel the statement that when Judas left the Passover feast, to go and betray Jesus Christ that it was night. Why does he do this? Not to tell them, tell the reader what time Jesus Christ was celebrating the Passover feast, it was always at night. But to show under what Judas was operating. He was operating under the cover of night. He was of the night. John's Gospel also treats Jesus Christ as the revealer of God, not just the Son of God, but the one who is the physical representation of God and the revelatory representative of God. Jesus Christ teaches us more about theology proper in the book of John than he does in any of the other three Gospels. John is very focused on this issue. Jesus Christ has the authority to tell us who God is. And it's an issue that John really likes as well. John makes two predicative statements about who God is in his epistle. In 1 John 1, 5, he says that God is light. And then in 1 John 4, he tells us that God is love. This is an absolute statement. No hedging. No two ways about it. That is the character of who God is. And he learned that from Jesus Christ, the revealer of God. This was written after Jerusalem was destroyed. No longer is the primary concern Jerusalem. However, John has been also mislabeled as a Gentile gospel. John is very much a Jew. John is very much a Jewish believer. And in many of the statements in the book of John, he contrasts with the Pharisaic teachings. But he doesn't do that because he is separated from Jewish culture, and he is now turned to Greek culture, or turned to Roman culture. No, he is combating the teaching of those Jews because he is enmeshed in Jewish culture, because those are the ideas he has to refute, because those are the present ideas. Now, he is not refuting Jewish customs, Jewish tradition, Jewish history, but he is refuting bad pharisaical interpretations of the law. He is refuting the Judaizers who are trying to teach Gentiles that they have no access to God, that they have to proselytize to Judaism in order to be saved rather than to believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior in order to be saved. John's gospel is a Jewish gospel, just like all four of the gospels. However, it wasn't written only to a Jewish audience. It was written to the church, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles. 
So this is what we could call a universal gospel, written to all people of all times, believers and unbelievers. To the unbelievers, it is written to point them to Christ. And for the believer, it is written to affirm the sufficiency of Christ, that nothing besides Christ is needed for salvation. Lastly, John is very organized. In fact, just like the book of Revelation, which is based around three sets of seven, the book of, or the gospel of John is based around three sets of seven. There are seven signs which John chooses to present. Again, just as he said, these are not the only signs that Jesus performed during his earthly ministry. But these are the seven which he chose to develop, the seven which were either underdeveloped or not present in the other Gospels. He also records seven discourses or seven sermons by Jesus Christ. So the five present in Matthew are not the only ones. We know that Jesus Christ gave many sermons, and some of them had similar topics and similar content, but not all are exactly the same. So John's theme of salvation by faith alone must be adhered to as we look at these seven discourses later in our study. And lastly, John records seven I am statements, seven absolute predicative statements of Jesus Christ stating exactly who he is. And as we look at these seven statements, we will see that there is no doubt that Jesus Christ was making a messianic claim. Jesus was making a claim to be God. And that will be the topic of next week as well, as we begin to look at Jesus Christ, the Word, who was with God and was God. So next week, the messianic genealogies. Before next week, read John 1, 1 through 18. Matthew 1, 1 through 17, and Luke 3, 23 to 38. If you are crunched on time, whatever is recorded first, read that one. That's going to be the most important for what we are studying. Uh, the homework then is student manual lessons 4 through 11. Uh, again, these are all resources that are available to you, but not mandatory. I'm just glad that you all showed up, and I hope you show up again next week. So, I'll see you all next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Let's pray to close. Dear Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift of your Son. We, uh, we are so thankful that we have these four records that we can go to, that we can understand. We thank you for uh, all the other resources you've given us to help us understand, uh, but most importantly for the recorded word, which is the inspired word of God by the hand of the, uh, the apostles by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for all these things, Lord. We pray for your guidance as we study, and uh, we pray that we can apply these things properly to our lives. We pray all these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen.